Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Dr. Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for today's discussion, and as usual, I'm joined by my favorite chemist and business partner, Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hey, everyone. Great to have you back, sir. We are also joined by David Valancourt from the GMP Collective, our standard standards guy. Thanks so much. It's great to be back on the show, guys. Great to great to have you both back. Uh, well, listener, we have a great show for you today. First, we're going to play a game that we are calling The More You Know, The Less You Act, and we'll test your knowledge about the More Act and Cannabis Federal Legalization, uh, and we'll have some fun with quotes from politicians about um, April's legalization activities. For our second segment, we'll discuss an article about the promises of drug development and other payoffs from uh, newly licensed DEA cannabis growers and bulk manufacturers. Very exciting stuff. And for our third segment, we'll discuss a strength and weakness assessment as well as a knowledge and attitude survey and analysis of Ukraine and a little bit of Eastern Europe's potential cannabis industry. This peer-reviewed article delves into the feasibility of a medical cannabis industry in Ukraine. All right, listener, we'll be right back. And we're back. Welcome to segment one. We'll be playing The More You Know, The Less You Act. This is a game about the politics around federal legalization. And this, I'm going to challenge uh, everyone's knowledge here. But first, just want to go quickly around the room. Um, David, what's one thing you know or feel about federal legalization? I think at least in the near term, it's kind of a joke. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. It does seem to be, uh, you know, there's like, there's the MORE Act, there's COA, there's other people are like, we should tax at 5%. Other people, we should tax at, at 99%. Like, there's all these, like, horrible ideas floating around. Um, Nigam, what's something about federal legalization that comes to mind? Uh, it's going to be really complex. More complex than anyone at the Fed knows. Mm-hmm. And I guess if you have to explain how complex the joke is, it really isn't that funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I'm not, was, <laughs> I know Dave, I, Dave's joking. I am not joking. <laughs> uh, well, so, you know, it, it wasn't a joke on April's Fool's Day when the House of Representatives voted to legalize marijuana. You know, this bill dubbed the Moore Act was passed mostly along party lines, you know, 220 to 204 with just three Republicans voting in favor and two Democrats opposed. So again, this would subject cannabis to a federal excise tax starting at 5%, then going up to 8%, create an opportunity trust fund, a community reinvestment grant program. And, you know, other stipulations. But the MORE Act, if it hasn't already by the time this podcast comes out, is expected to fail in the Senate, partially because the Senate has its own bill, the COA Act, which would impose a 25% excise tax on marijuana products. Um, Essentially, there's a huge gap between these two um, cannabis federal legalization bills. So, um, you know, what happened this month or what's been happening is a lot of politicians have been talking about their opinions about legalizing cannabis. And politicians have taken their support or not support to both mainstream media and social media. So this game is an all none or one. I want to see if you guys can guess 
from these quotes I'm going to share uh, is, are they all real quotes from politicians? Are none of them real quotes? Or is only one of them the fake one? So all, all are real, none are real, or only one is fake. So that's, that's the challenge. So we're going to start off with our first quote. So in response to um, this recent movement on federal legalization, is it A, uh, marijuana is, quote, against my faith. So for a couple of reasons, I don't use it and would not vote to make it legal. That is A, first choice, against my faith. So for a couple of reasons, I don't use it and would not vote to make it legal. B is I grew hemp. I own a distillery. My wife makes whiskey. I love freedom. You might be thinking, is that a response a politician would say when asked about their views about federal legalization of cannabis? Next one, C. It's time we puff, puff, pass legislation that protects legal marijuana and decriminalize it. Or let, let you think about D. Um, it would be dangerous and irresponsible to not only decriminalize, but to use taxpayer funds to incentivize the selling and usage of marijuana. So just real quickly, A, against my faith. So for a couple of reasons, I don't use it and would not vote to make it legal. B, I grew hemp. I own a distillery. My wife makes whiskey. I love freedom. Is it C, it's time we puff, puff, pass legislation that protects legal marijuana and decriminalizes it. Or is it D, it would be dangerous and irresponsible to not only decriminalize, but to use taxpayer funds to incentivize the selling and usage of marijuana. I see some little bit of blank faces, a no, few smiles. I, no, I'm thinking I, I I can I can take a stab. So I'm gonna do the thing I usually do and just kind of run through them. So the first one <laughs> against my faith, blah blah blah. Yeah, that seems like uh, that that seems real. I'm gonna vote that one's real. Um, this one I grew hemp. I own a distillery. My wife makes whiskey. I love freedom. I so want that to be real. Uh, I can see, um, you know, I know we do have a few, uh, let's call them non-traditional, non-party line, maybe libertarian or maybe, you know, green party, or there's these other kind of other entities in the political landscape. And I could see this coming from one of those maybe. Um, so, I got a, I got a yes. I got a maybe. Okay, this third one. It's time we've puff, puff, pass legislation that protects legal marijuana and decriminalizes it! Exclamation mark. Um. Oh man, that one's hard for me. Jet. That one makes me. That's like <laughs> makes me want to vote. So I'm, I'm trying to think. Yeah. Um. I'm trying. Yeah. To you know, a politician wouldn't say something that stupid and cheesy. Is what you're thinking, right? I mean, just the. Uh, <laughs> oh my. It's really. It's really the puff, puff part. That, that's getting me so i i think i'm gonna have to vote that it, it's definitely not all and then okay this last one the last one's kind of kind of like the first one it's dangerous you shouldn't use taxpayer money it, once again it's an antiquated prohibitionist perspective that i think a lot of us have come to expect so i think i got two i believe one i want to believe and one, I just don't. I see. I, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't think that's. I, so I you so, definitely, but. you definitely would. You would not vote none, but you're, I would you're not in between all or one right now. Yeah. Oh, is our choices? Uh, what are the choices again? Well, yeah. Is it all or one of them? Is, is that yeah? Is it? Are they all? Uh, are they all made up? Are none of them made up? Or is only one of them like a, a fictional? Quote? Okay. 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 So, so I'm gonna vote. I think. Uh, 
I think only one's fictional. The Puff Puff Pass is is fictional. That's right. my that's me. David, do you have your checklist out to assure the quality yeah. of these quotes? Well, I need to put my standards hat on and ask for uh, some clarity around defining the, what a politician is, because mm. uh, perhaps to Nigam's point, I mean, I think we've seen some fairly, uh, let's just use the word ludicrous, if I may, um, you know, politicians in, in statements that folks have made. So but these are, are you know, I would say this, they are all either current representatives or they are recently um, former representatives, but they're all still active in, in politics. Okay, fair enough. And I'm not even sure thinking about it further whether that would really. I mean, really I'm not like quoting because... some some reverend in Kentucky who's like running for the school board or something like that. Yeah, running for the school board or yeah, mayor of some small town that you know everybody has an opinion, right, and wants to get their voice well, that's, heard. That's how it all starts. Yeah, yeah. Now th- these are these are some some interesting folks, you know. Um, I hope so. I give away a clue. So maybe I'll give you guys a clue. It's not, they're not all fake. How about that? I'll give you a clue. That's there. So well, the two, the two seem right in well, line. Okay. Sorry, David. Yeah, you go. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, uh, regardless of what you just, uh, said, Jehan, um, I, I think all these are pretty viable. I can see politicians, uh, having stated all of these. So I'm, I'm going to go in the all camp. All right. So that sounds like that sounds like we have our, our guesses in. So Nigam uh, thinks C. It's timely puff puff pass legislation that protects legal marijuana to criminalize it is just a ridiculous thing that no elected official would probably <laughs> say. David says this is on par for anyone that the public would vote for. So <laughs> let's <laughs> let's well said. let's yep. let's run through some of these. Okay, let's start with with A. So. Um, who would say using marijuana is against my faith? So for a couple of reasons, I don't use it. I would not vote to make it legal. That is a Republican from Utah. That is Senator Mitt Romney um, being quoted um, according to Marijuana Moment. So let's move on to Nigam's favorite one. Um, I grew hemp. I own a distillery. My wife makes whiskey. I love freedom. I wish I could write fiction this good, but... This was indeed former Representative Denver Riggleman, a Republican from Virginia, who went on to say in this tweet he posted that if he ran for Virginia governor, he would push to legalize marijuana uh, because Virginia's agricultural has prowess and tobacco infrastructure that make this a no-brainer, urging people to, quote, look ahead. So let's let's jump to D. Dangerous and irresponsible to not only decriminalize, but to use taxpayer funds to incentivize the selling and usage of marijuana. Oddly enough, this came from an elected official in California, Representative Doug LaMalfa. Uh, he went on and he posted on social media. <laughs> Apparently, he doesn't know what's going on in his state um, because they already have adult use and medical use there. Um, so that leads us to see. It's time we puff, puff, pass legislation that protects legal marijuana and decriminalizes it. Well, uh, this was... A elected official from Nevada, a Democrat, said legal marijuana business in my district needs Congress's support. It's time we puff, puff, pass legislation. So it means that these are all real quotes wow. uh, from elected officials. I know. Wow. Indeed. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I guess, I guess times are changing. <laughs> all right. Well, congratulations, David. <laughs> you win. Today. Thank you. 
You know, I just was Googling while you mentioned uh, Mitt Romney at the beginning, because um, I, I know Mormons don't like coffee or, you know, uh, alcohol. And I found an article about him eating um, coffee ice cream. So I don't know where we want to put the bar for uh, mm. quant- level of quantitation of caffeine we, and whether he's... We might have to look value. at the scriptures because it might be more specific about oral <laughs> delivery, but not other forms mm. of delivery. So we should be, you know, <laughs> it says alcohol should not touch these lips. doesn't say about any other lips or anything else. So... We should probably for future research. We'll get a Mormon scholar in here. All right. <laughs> All right, listener, we'll be right back with segment two after this break. Hello, I'm Dr. Ethan Russo, CEO of Credo Science where our goal is to make cannabis safer and better with our formulation services. Learn more at credo-science.com. That's C-R-E-D-O-science.com. Thank you. And we're back. Now it's time for us to peruse and discuss news, business, and popular literature. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. So our topic for today comes from MJ Biz Daily and is entitled, Can DEA-backed cannabis growers strike gold via drug development? But before we go into the article, I just want to ask real quickly, um, Nigam, what is something you know, or comes to mind about DEA licensed cannabis manufacturers. It, it seems like this has been promised so many times. So to see it, it actually happening is, is it's pretty cool. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Right. Like, absolutely. Like this is, we've heard about this monopoly uh, for a long time and it's cool to see it expanded. So Dave, uh, what's one thing that you know or, or comes to mind about DEA-licensed cannabis farms? Oh, man. Well, for certain as I understand it, you know, the DEA is, of course, on the enforcement side and kind of holds some of the purse strings, but they all still have to follow FDA's requirements for good manufacturing practices. So we adhere to standards and quality, um, identity of the product, and consistency. So uh, I think there's a, a positive there that the DEA-backed uh, research cultivators bring to the table yeah that's a standard response from the standards guy um so so dave would you advise anyone to apply for a dea license oh you know there's here's what i would say there's pros and cons i mean i would encourage folks to look at the requirements there and uh set themselves up for success with having all the consistency and best practices the uh process for dea we might unpack a little bit but um if you can do it, um, what's what's the downside? Uh, you want if you have the DEA on your side, um, and you're able to you know raise the bar there and be uh, part of an elite few. There's probably some pros. Yeah, like what is the DEA going to do? Raid its own farm? Um, right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's good protection. <laughs> it's good protection. Um, Nigam, uh, off the top of your head, uh, a lot of people know this trivia question. A lot of people don't. But do you know when the first DEA cultivation license was awarded? like the first one ever given was it the university of mississippi right to to be a dea bulk manufacturer of cannabis yeah i, I believe it was in the 60s i think we're running on you know 40 50 years of of that monopoly you were mentioning right 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it was basically uh, right before the summer of love. They thought, what we, should we do to celebrate this? So in 1968, they gave out uh, the first bulk manufacturer license for growing cannabis. Um, and, and then Mississippi has won the award, <laughs> these license for a record time. I mean, like, I think, you know, Mike Tyson being like champion of the world for, for several years and stuff, no one turns a blind eye. But if he was like boxing champion for like 60 years, you'd be like, I don't know. Maybe it's a little rigged. I don't know. But but now now there are five DEA licensed cannabis growers or bulk manufacturers for cannabis. And this article interviews a lot of these licensees, which is fascinating, including uh, George Hodgson Nigam from Biopharmaceutical Research Company. So five entities are registered with the DEA as, quote, bulk manufacturer marijuana growers, and a marijuana with an H, in case you were confused about what they might be growing. Um, and they're allowed to grow and sell marijuana flowers and extracts to researchers registered with the federal agency. Who are they, might you be asking? Where are they? Um, here are a few companies they talk about. So there's Biopharmaceutical Research Company, which sounds like a fake company, but it, but it is a real company. They're in Castroville, California, um, and our, and our our colleague and friend George Hodgkin works there. He's the founder, CEO, and hopefully future guest of the podcast. We can't wait to like pick his brain about this stuff. Um, there's also Groff North America, which is in Red Lion, Pennsylvania. That's Red Lion, the city. They're not operating out of a restaurant, but um, just in case you're confused. <laughs> and then there's the one that has the most official sounding cannabis name, which is Royaled Emerald Pharmaceuticals um, in Desert Hot Springs, California. And, you know, this is interesting. So, so I, I get questions like, how can how can these things be a money winner? Like, we see these operations. You know, we know that cannabis businesses, even dispensaries and cultivators, even if they run a great operation, struggle all the time to meet changing demands for consumers, changing regulations. So, you know, one of the answers people say is that by partnering with pharmaceutical companies and multi-state operators to develop products approved by the U.S. FDA. These could be sold by prescription or over the counter. And so the idea that I think the play here is these licensed DA bulk manufacturers can partner with pharma. They could partner with an MSO. They could partner with a state operator and get their drugs, their pro their stuff, turn their stuff into properly regulated drugs. Um, thoughts on this, you know, uh, Nigam, we've done a lot of due diligence around people for their investment decks, for their product pipelines. We've done research leads. We've done talks analysis. What are some thoughts you have about this development? Yeah, so I'm going to highlight, you know, what I saw as two main threads in the article. So we had kind of two perspectives. One was that this is going to take a long time. So Sue Sicily uh, you know, who's very experienced in this realm and, and well-respected in the industry. And she sued the DEA. DEA. So um, anyways, she's saying it's going to take 10 years to get flour through this process. So everyone's, you know, excited about it. But she's saying, you know, it's not going to be profitable for these entities that got these licenses and that for a, you know, a, a full spectrum or a, a plant material, it, it's, it's going to be a long time now. And, and I, I agree with her and, and I, and I have a ton of respect, uh, for, for Dr. Sicily and, and all the work that she she's done and continues to do. The other thing, uh, the flip side is that, um, 
on the more traditional pharmaceutical side, like uh, George and biopharmaceutical research was talking about, they are specifically supplying API to uh, research entities or pharmaceutical companies that want to work with that. But the problem uh, that's been highlighted by him and by some other people interviewed here is just the volume. So um, I believe it was uh, Groff, uh, their their, uh, representative was saying that the way that they're supplementing that is they actually have products out on the market. So they're kind of doing this hybrid thing, right? Where they're selling, I believe, CBD products to, to keep the lights on. And then they're have this license to do uh, supply for more uh, fundamental research purposes or pharmaceutical development uh, purposes. So th- there's kind of like two sides to the coin here. And I don't think one's right or one's wrong, but there, there are a lot of great points from from highly involved people in the industry here. Right, they get they get points for for a good concept here, good good business model, um, and I think there's no right or wrong way to do it. It does feel a little weird that Groff it would be selling products because I guess technically it's not a drug till you're trying to treat a condition with it. So, I mean, it's it's just an interesting gray area that they operate in, and I like that you mentioned um, it could take years to get cannabis flowers through this process, which is ironic because you know. Um, I, last time I waited in line at a, an adult use dispensary, it took about ten years to to get anything. So I'm kind of used to the long, <laughs> long waits. Um, but uh, but uh, David, I want to get your feedback here. I mean, it must be an exciting time um, to be a GMP assessor and working in standards at ASTM, and, and then hearing this type of development. Um, so, what is sort of your reaction to this recent development? Now, now, like. It's not just University of Mississippi. It's you got all these places popping up that might need someone like you there. Yeah, you know, and I got to meet and work with George a bit back when he was applying for the DEA license. This is God, what? Yeah, five years ago or so. Um, you know, before it uh, just sat on Jeff Sessions' desk for an eternity, which brought us here. So yeah, Jayhan, you still got five more years, right? We're, we still got plenty of time uh, until you're kind of sick of waiting in line. Um, I think that is the key, right? And one thing we've got to look at is a supply and demand. So this is basic economics. And I think that's where Sue makes some really good points in this article. So what is what is the demand? You still have the DA in between. You still have them as a potential roadblock to have to approve everything. So you want to request, you know, 50,000 grams, five kilos, whatever it is, uh, Jayhan and Nigam, for your, your preclinical research. You're still waiting on the DEA to hold the purse strings. And, you know, there, there's just so there's that in between that's going to prevent these folks from really being able to just like scale to market and respond to the market need. And there's already a ton of product like Ole Miss is sitting on plenty of product that they have been contracted by NIDA to develop and to produce. So there's an interesting just supply and demand concept there. And um, I think until we remove some of those barriers, uh, I think, yeah, Sue has some really valid points, but back to the five-year plan, if you're expecting this to transform us overnight, yeah, manage your expectations, guys. You're screwed. (laughs) If you've got the long haul five to 10 years where I think there's multiple benefits, right? One and this is where it goes back to other folks, who's going to be the best set up for 
international export, for you know meeting quality standards for interstate trade in a world where Schedule One disappears and the DEA doesn't have their hands in it. These new folks, these new private companies. So to all of the folks in state marketplaces, you're going to be at even you've got more competitors that are just waiting for the federal cards to fall. So I think it just reiterates the need for folks to really look at good manufacturing practices that everybody can meet that actually ensures that we produce safe, consistent product. So I'll pause there. Those are my initial thoughts. Uh, Dave, I wanted to uh, piggyback off what you were saying about the amount. So there were some interesting numbers um, in this article. So uh, it says the demand is based on DEA quotas. For 2022, the DEA set the quota for 3.2 million grams of flour or just under 7,000 55 pounds. The agency also set a quota for extract at 1 million grams. But the problem is, so they set these quotas. So if you just set the quota and then if you provide funding or you assisted in creating a, a market or a purchaser for those grams, those pounds, then, then great. Then that's pretty simple. But the problem is they set these quotas, but there's an additional rule that they can only produce the material, the people that got these licenses, the entities that got these licenses, can only produce the material once they have a request in hand from a licensed researched institution or licensed pharmaceutical developer. So it's kind of a cat and a mouse thing. DEA says, yeah, we're giving out licenses, grow 7,000 pounds. And okay, but just like Dr. Sicily was very wisely saying, and some other people in the article were saying like, okay, well, where's the demand? Where are the, where are the pharmaceutical companies saying, Hey, I need a half, you know, I need 500 pounds. I need a thousand pounds. Yep. Exactly. Cause people have to plan out research. And this has been, I think part of the frustration all along and, you know, is, is I think they said it great in the article. Is it, um, one of the registrants responded, we have to sell the car before we can build it. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that's one of the things that, um, and I know you asked the question today, but I wanted to jump in there is that's one of the things that's taken a while because University of Mississippi notoriously underfunded for this program, like in private conversations, um, you know, the, the folks there have told me one of the reasons we win the license is we underbid everybody and we can do it very inexpensively. And if you think about that, well, then it's probably going to be more difficult for them to develop new varieties and new products. So, you know, do an about face to get the right product for you and breed the right variety of strain might take a year, you know, to crossbreed all mm-hmm. that. So, um, but yeah, but, but Dave, um, since the question was intended for you, maybe you should answer it. <laughs> well, I just want to add to your point, you know, I was fortunate to be down in Ole Miss uh, about a month ago for a natural products uh, convention with the FDA and lots of others. And, um, you know, same points you're making, Jahan, right? And the other thing to remember, and my, you know, my pre-GMP days were in a lot of federal contract work. So when NIDA solicits the, 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 you know, the RFQ, your request for quote, um, you put your bid together and you're, you're contracting the government. The government's telling you, here's the quality, here's the you know, quality attributes, here's this type of product that we're going to create for you. So they're also kind of following into the contract box where what's the creativity there? There's kind of this uh, other issue. And then, of course, yeah, the cycle time of getting the genetics and the breeds to actually be able to produce that product. And then, oh, wait, now I'm, you know, I'm starting to assemble this car in theory, but who's 
I get to sell it first too. So there's just all these con- restrictions on it. And uh, I think that's a really valid challenge where I think everybody, you know, folks get bad rap for the wrong reasons because it's easy to just target folks when it's a, this is a systems issue. This comes back to the DEA systems issue that Nigam, you just, you know, highlighted really well with the quotas and the quotes in the, uh, in the MJ biz article. So yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> Speaking of uh, quotas and all that, so, you know, I was just sitting here listening and, and thinking there's a, another thing thing going on here. So, first of all, I, I just want to reiterate, I'm supportive of this. Um, as, as we talk through, we, we know most of these folks uh, and... And, you know, just honestly, just cheers. Like you were saying, George applied five years ago. And this is good. So to be clear, I'm not saying this is not good. I think this is good. But I I feel like I would be remiss to not make a a small comment about the many paths forward, right? So this is good in the context of the historical prohibition and the actions of the Mm -hmm. DEA. So when we look at the DEA as an entity over the last 70 years, this is kind of incredible, right? But let's just ignore that and let's just look at the industry. Let's look at patients. Let's look at folks with resources to do research who want to do research. And then there's this obvious question. Why not just use products that are already on the shelf? Why not just use products that are already being regulated and tested by the states and being in some ways vetted by the consumer population for their effects? My my thirty second thing is 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 having published, you know, anecdotal and observational work uh, in humans with these products. You know, it's not it's not impossible to do it, but you know, my confidence in a lot of products being there for long periods of time. Like the best thing about the industry is also the worst thing about the industry. There's an explosion of product diversity and. But also what you see is a lot of rotation. So like the the brand ambassadors or whatever will be like, everyone wants lemon kush next season. So they get rid of all the other varieties. Everyone buys clones, grows that. Then it's like, you know what? People want, you know, purple Urkel. So they get rid of all those clones and then they grow that because they're anticipating consumer demand, trends and markets. And so I worry about like drug development where you need... I need a mil like look look at look at maps in the MDMA trials. It's like we need seven hundred thousand doses of MDMA for the next five years, and they don't want like you know to run short on that. But um, you know, I think I think that I think there's a mixed approach there. Where yeah, there should be a pathway to say products on the market. We want to legitimize them and use them in research. I completely agree, but having done just a little bit of that, I can say it's really frustrating. It's. But, it's yeah. it's uh it's cyclic, right? Because uh, if we're allowed to do research with existing products, then the good ones will rise to the top, and the one it it'll help vet those products and help build consumer confidence. But I will uh, and, and Dave, I know you have a comment too. Uh, I I do just want to clarify one thing, Jehan. I I totally agree with you. I think for the um in the in the current context having these entities able to provide API or able to provide standardized flower for research in many regards, it obviously is a value, but I couldn't help but just poke a little bit at this yeah, it's kind a of spicy silly, comment. It, it's it very spicy. It doesn't have here, here. Here's my last thing I'll say. It didn't need, and it still doesn't need to be either or we could do both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so. And you could compare both. I think that's, yeah. I, I agree. <laughs> exactly. 
Let's all write a yeah. letter right now to the federal government. Let's work on that. Well, and I think if I can add, you know, a couple of things, and I'll wrap it up. You know, one, the quality of the products. Kind of Nigam's point about the state marketplace and the for better or for worse. And the FDA actually published a really great peer-reviewed article, at least in my humble opinion. I think other folks would hopefully agree um, about you know what the testing requirements look like in the states and kind of the discrepancies there and how that's um, you know where those gaps exist relative to federal GMP requirements. And that comes back to properly characterizing you know the identity, strength, and purity of these products, which we really need to ensure that we're as you know we're having consistency if we're going to do any sort of controlled trials using existing state marketplace products. So that that is definitely a gap we need to work on. But there is an in-between process that we can look at uh, that I think needs further discussion that I've had some discussions with agencies and groups about of like looking at what uh, amount of real world evidence we actually need and can compile to provide that that pathway that's in between the yeah billions of dollars that it takes for pharma um, versus you know where we're at today. So I think there's a there's an in between, but probably take an act of Congress and we could probably spend a whole episode talking about that. But check out the FDA article and then to kind of just wrap it all back to Negan's point. This is a great next step. <clears throat> this isn't the end all be all, but it's a great next step. So while there's lots of you know we kind of boohooed some of the things and you know, the market demand, um, this is a positive step and we're not done yet. We're never going to be done. So. Um, I'm really appreciative of, of where we're at with at least having these, you know, uh, George's and the other folks opportunities to really Im- influence the market. All right. You know, thank you, David. So speaking of next steps and peer reviewed articles, I think it's time we move on to segment three. So listener will be right back with rapid fire science. Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go-to. Reach out to us at marku-aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. Remember that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal. And we're back. Welcome to segment three, our peer-reviewed section of the show, what we call Rapid Fire Science. And our main story today is on an article published by Ukrainian cannabis researchers on perspectives on formation of medical cannabis market in Ukraine based on holistic approach. And, you know, this article was published in 2020. And it looks at the creation of a new cannabis-related uh, spheres and markets that could directly influence social and economic indices in the Ukraine, especially, as they point out in the article, if high-value products are manufactured. So, gang, before we dive into some of the data in this report, which compares knowledge and attitude surveys and a SWOT analysis of this, I just want to say, like, what do we know about cannabis in the Ukraine or Eastern Europe? Like, what are some general things? Like, for example... We know that there's been a liberalization of drug laws across Europe for the most part. Um, you know, there's been definitely some influences of cannabis in different markets. Um, we know <laughs> Russia has 
main imprisoned an American basketball star, Brittany Griner, over allegedly having a vape cartridge or something like that. Still in prison for months now over this. Um, but you know, aside from you know. <laughs> Uh, Soviet era drug policies still affecting some nations. There are some interesting developments. So, um, David, I want to go to you first. Any any cool things you know about uh, Eastern Europe and cannabis? Yeah, well, I mean, Eastern Europe, uh, that area does have a lot of archaeological remnants. Which, you know, considering my background as a as a geologist and a fan of you know history and archaeology, a bit kind of dabble there. Don't don't pretend to know uh, all the things, but um, yeah, there's certainly <clears throat> evidence of cannabis and and graves of nomadic warriors back in you know Serbia, Ukraine, dating back before uh, what uh, two or three thousand years. So there's <clears throat> This, there's there's a long history over there, and uh, nobody should be surprised at that, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. And, and cannabis indica, our one specimen of cannabis indica was found in Siberia in like the 40s or 50s or something. And that's that's what we base everything off of. Like it's indica because it looks like this one plant that one person found in a desert. So yeah, the, I think there's been, like you said, there's been cool archaeological discoveries, cool botanical discoveries. Absolutely. Um, you know, Nigam, um, anything you want to share uh like what comes to mind when you think of Ukraine and cannabis? So, uh, I, I actually, uh, you know, learned a lot, uh, reading through some of the resources for, for the show, Jehan and a couple top line ones is that, um, in, in the whole region, there's some different laws. So right now it is still legislatively prohibited in Ukraine, but in some nearby places, um, you know, Estonia, Georgia, Lithuania, um, if we go a little further, um, you know, Czech Republic, North Macedonia, there are more liberal laws and there are things developing. So, so regionally, um, I, I think there's some, some momentum. A- absolutely. So, you know, uh, Nigam, uh, mentioned a couple of regions, uh, David, I know you travel around a lot. Um, can you like, do you know any specifics about some of those regions of Europe. I know you've been all over the world and you know all this stuff about cannabis and how it's grown. You're talking me up, Jehan. I appreciate it, man. Eastern Europe is a location that uh, uh, I've got a good colleague in uh, in Prague that has, uh, you know, reminds me that as COVID restrictions are easing up, I owe them a, a trip out there. Yeah, um, yeah. Let me know if you need an assistant. Perfect. I will definitely let you know. Yeah, we'll work with her and the team because uh, there's a lot of research and there's there's medical facilities in in the Czech, as I think Nigam alluded to. You know, you can there's actually a um, hospitals have cultivation and growing rooms or like uh yeah, smoking yeah. Rooms oh yeah for yeah patients i've been to the Prague. universities uh, the, 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 like this the czech university or the university of czech republic uh, they were growing cannabis in the lab and like grow tents yeah. and then the students were coming in and learning how to like trim and extract it with plants i was like man if that's what school was like i would have never left like, right yeah <laughs> my mind was blown when my colleagues were sharing that to me i was like oh my god are you kidding me that's uh, this is wild and then you know to your point the other things that i learned in this i mean you know georgia decriminalized cannabis use in 2017 right um lithuania's had uh medical cannabis legislation passed in 2018 you know they're the only post-soviet territory that i'm aware of uh that as it uh, describes here to legalize medical cannabis and cannabinoids so um you know there's still no cultivation but they're you know the cards are falling globally right and eastern europe is no no exception i guess is maybe the takeaway yeah um absolutely oh man i'm I'm loving this all right um 
so far great points. I don't know, Nigam, is there is there like a cherry or some like chocolate sprinkles you want to put on this? Uh, I'm ready to to really kind of dive in on it. You know, we we are, I I guess I'd already kind of shared some some thoughts about the the region. I, I'm excited to talk about some of the specifics, and th- this is such a great article. I'm just excited to dive in. Excellent. So so real quick about this article, um, I read an article in Science Magazine, and it was about what's going on in Ukraine. And it said, if you're a scientist or a researcher, you should reach out to people in your field that are in the region because it might actually help them out. It might be a great way to distract them from the stress of life. So I started looking up who's doing cannabis and cannabinoid research in the Ukraine. And I actually wrote um, the author, uh, Natalia Alekparova. Um, but as you might imagine, she was moving from place to place, setting up class, moving. I mean, her emails are very diplomatic, provided no exact details, but just the nature of the last three weeks of communicating and um, getting to discuss this article. So I'm hoping at some point in the future we could you know, um, have more correspondence or even, even collaborate. And that's why I chose this article. So the objective of their study was to take a holistic approach aimed at the creation of you know, the appropriate conditions to develop a cannabis marketplace, like something we wish maybe some regions of the United States would have done is, is actually look at what infrastructures exist to make this run. Um, they, they look at how will this, what aspects will be affected in terms of quality of life and health of Ukrainian patients. They also surveyed pharmacy students um, and conducted a SWOT analysis again of setting up this market. So um, there's already a lot of companies operating in Ukraine that deal with the production uh, a production of like cosmetic products, including hemp, food products made of hemp seed, clothes, equipment for growing hemp, um, software and stuff like that. And there's also research activity and hemp growing technologies um, in, exercised by their Institute of Bast Crops, according to this. But again, direct quote from the article, despite the ban on cannabis and cannabinoids used for medical and scientific purposes in Ukraine, there's a considerable need for preparations based on them. Because get this, they had an online petition um, in 2019 calling to have more regulation for cannabis and cannabinoids, more access, because over 2 million people in Ukraine do not receive any pharmaceutical care. We're talking 20,000 children that have things like drug-resistant epilepsy, can maybe benefit from things like Epidiolex or other CBD products, um, You know, 100,000 palliative care patients, uh, war veterans, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it's it's really a lot there. And so they, what's interesting is they did this survey in 2019 and then they did another survey and it's shown some interesting things. So it, before 2019, you know, 30% uh, of, of the respondents supported legalizing uh, cannabis, 28% partially supported and 25% had strong opposition. And at this time in the Ukraine, the report basically showed that if you're a young male between 18 and 35 with a high income level living in a large city, you support cannabis. But if you're a woman over 50 with low income living in the Western regions, you don't support it. And their trend was generally people with higher levels of education and higher income support legalizing cannabis, which is a very interesting association that the the authors found. But, uh, you know, Nigam, I want to go to you because they did this knowledge and attitude survey and they did it with pharmacy students. So I just wanted to kick it over to you. I know you're a big numbers guy. I always look to you for numbers. So, you know, in figure one, they show that these uh, Ukrainian pharmacy students are, 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 are pretty well aware of the issue of like two million Ukrainians um, 
at that time having limited access to effective treatments. Um, but what does this sort of tell you? Like, what, what's your sort of initial response here? Yeah, I, I'm happy to run through some of the numbers. Uh, one other thing I just want to note as like an addition to what you were saying, Jehan, and it, you were talking about the the need, right? These palliative care, cancer patients, uh, child, I think it's the numbers, 20,000 children with treatment resistant epilepsy, not receiving treatment. I mean, these are big needs. And uh, there's a, a paragraph in the PDF that has all that. And I just like, that was the only thing I highlighted in the PDF, like literally the exact thing you, you read off. So, um, but the thing I wanted to add was that there is um, something that I wasn't aware of that I learned from this article that uh, there are, it, it's hard to get opioids in Ukraine. Right. It's crazy. Right. So they're, they're saying, oh, all these other European countries, oh yeah, they, they can get the opioids. They can get morphine. Think about morphine for end of life care. This is a standard thing to ease people's and end of life and in ukraine it's just it's harder to get right so that's like another case for why uh cannabinoid based therapies and treatments could be of great value so anyways uh jayhan i i'll answer the question you asked me now i just couldn't help but, but share <laughs> no those that, that's a fantastic point i love that it's it really points to the need i mean if i if i you know god forbid someone like breaks their leg and needs medical treatment would you just rather give them nothing or something that could actually help them um, right. I mean, I think that it's interesting to see all the roles and it's not, it goes beyond cannabis, uh, just being used as a, you know, adult use spectrum, just, just to relax and for pleasure. But you think about antibacterial wound healing, you think about other aspects of it as an adjunct treatment. I think that's a great point about the opioids because that's something that we're always discussing it's, in the U S wow, there seems to be an association between decreasing the abuse uh, liability, decreasing use associated with opioids and cannabis. Like, yeah, that's a great well, point. And it's okay. So now, okay. So now we're in the rabbit hole. I'm going to say something else about it <laughs> is that it's, in, it. it's interesting. And I think it speaks to the, the, the privilege that we have here. that A lot of folks have here in the U S and, and as much as we complain about the medical system that a privilege, a lot of people have within it is that, um, in the U S we have a glut of opioids. So, the raw raw about cannabis is and, and i'm not saying i disagree I, I actually kind of agree with the raw raw uh is that you know we see these reports coming out of colorado you know five years on from legalization that opioid use is down um and and and, and i think that makes sense but then we look at the same thing opioids versus cannabis and then not versus but the two next to each other for similar conditions and in ukraine it's not here we have the glut and then cannabis helps the glut of opioids go down in Ukraine. This, this article is saying they literally have trouble getting medically necessary opioids for HIV patients, for cancer patients, for end of life patients. They can't, there's 20,000 children with treatment resistant epilepsy. They don't have a treatment for them. So it's this whole other justification for for this and i mean they're they're both they're both good they're they're both good in different contexts and different geographies but um anyway so I, i'm gonna come back out of the rabbit hole and and just and try to try to speak just briefly to jayhan some of these numbers that you're asking about so um 
uh, they, they've got some really good uh, um, tables in here for for people who want to read through this quickly, and, and we'll obviously post it on the on the show notes. And um, so they're saying that to clarify, like Jehan was saying, they did basically two surveys. One survey was of two thousand people in the populace of Ukraine, like Jehan was saying, older women in Western Ukraine in a rural area, young men that live in Kiev and have uh you know a good job and in people in between right and so jayhan already spoke to that but what i'm going to speak to is they did a separate survey which the majority of the uh of articles about where they surveyed 430 some pharmacy students most of which were fourth year senior students studying pharmacy and within that group here's what they found they found are these students uh, aware of the limited access to effective treatments? Like we were just talking about the whole opioid thing, right? So uh, 43% were more aware than not. Um, 32% were yes, aware. And then you have 25% of these students who just literally don't even know this is an issue, right? Um, so it really, let me try to restate that. 32% of the students really know it's an issue in the rest. It, it, it's lesser known. Um, a couple other top line ones. Do these students know about the therapeutic potential and properties of cannabis in this one's even lower. We have 16%. Yes. Well aware. And then you have 38% more aware than not aware but then you still have almost 50% of these pharmacy students who just don't even have a familiarity. And, and that kind of reminds me of the U S where they just totally black it out in, in medical and pharmacy <laughs> education. Just mm -hmm. yeah. here's this huge industry in this therapeutic thing. And let's just block it out. Okay. Last one. Um, Ukrainian pharmacy students attitudes to including uh, data on medical cannabis in their academic programs. So this one is promising. 54% gave a clear yes, it's worth including. And we only had, um, let's see, a total of 14% who had a mixture of answers that was basically like, I don't know, or no, don't include it. So we kind of have these numbers saying that like it's not well known and there's these gaps, but then the students, the young people, the innovators in the country and the region, they want to know and they want to, they want to learn and they want to, they want to help their, their, community you know yeah absolutely i mean and and it's so good to hear that health professionals need to be educated but they also want to be educated and that almost half of them are aware of this issue and i think that 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 might have an effect on support for alternative treatments or alternative ways to address the problem so so dave I'd like to get your response, ideally to figure three, because they f they did survey these same pharmacy students that Nigam outlined, the, the 435 or so, regarding uh, support of legalization of cannabis. So um, could you speak to like those the, the surveys we were talking about? Yeah, you know, I think it's really important important to kind of recognize as as Nigam was saying like let's let's start with the perspective of like not even having basic access to you know foundational medicinal you know therapy um you know um drugs that can support a a critical need in a population so there you know there's uh different 
problem, you know, between say the U.S. and Ukraine and you know other developing nations with access to basic medicine, where we've got you know plenty of opioids pumping out, and but cannabis can certainly help from a you know risk benefit standpoint. This is a you know major opportunity to fill a gap um, in a uh, in a culture in a country um, with you know sick patients. So I think that's really huge to just you know, kind of reiterate. Um, you know, looking at the pharmaceutical, uh, the pharmacy students, right? I think there's another perspective too, just to not not to put it in a positive or negative light, but in terms of recognizing that that's folks that are a the next generation of folks, um, which is great. Um, it also, you know, has kind of a different perspective versus once you're into reality of you know working as a professional in a pharmacy or in a hospital, where um, you know the opportunity to learn decreases, you know, less edu- less professional education, etc. Attitudes change, you know. Uh, access to new new and novel information changes. So I think that's an interesting maybe constraint to the study that I'd like to point out. Um, mm. I mean, I know that, you know, nearly 40%, 40, what, 44% of respondents noted that it's very important to create national research basis to studying this. Um, so it seems based on what I reviewed here that, yeah, um, folks see the value and are really supporting the need for increased education and increased access to this medicine. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what I got out of this. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and I definitely think that, as you guys are saying, that there is more increased support for legalization, but it's it seems to be very bounded in, in, in um, Ukraine. You know, you're talking um, a lot of support for cannabis and cannabinoids for medical and scientific purposes. Um, but, uh, you know, they examined a lot of things. They looked at, you know, the feasibility of education and training materials on cannabis and the endocannabinoid system. They, they received a lot of positive feedback for the, the master of pharmacy students. Um, you know, they, they looked at a other thing. And then the other thing they looked at were opportunities, strengths, weaknesses. And I thought some of, um, you know, the opportunities there were interesting. I thought another interesting aspect that they outlined, and I've never seen this in a paper, um, uh, which I, I you know, so rarely print out studies these days. I printed out this study because it was so cool. Um, they had, and I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but they had this um, key stakeholders in the Ukrainian cannabis market breakdown where it's like, who has the highest interest and who has the highest power, who has low power, high interest, all this stuff. And it's like law enforcement, low interest, high power. <laughs> it's like patients who need it, high interest, low power and they they literally talk about predictable actions after legalization for these different groups as fascinating stuff um but but nigam i i don't know if if, if you wanted to throw in a, a comment on that but i found that to be a really fascinating thing and, and dave i'd love to hear if they left out any stakeholders in here but uh <laughs> i was gonna you know yeah i i had wanted to when when we were you know just discussing the, what to talk about in the article, this was something I definitely wanted to to bring up. And the thing, uh, Jahan, you've done a great job of just kind of like reviewing it. So again, for the listener, it's it's Figure Seven, and I wanted to bring up like a, a small critique. Like overall, the, this for all the papers we've critiqued on this show, I think this one I I really like. I really don't have many negative critiques for it. But the, but here's one I wanted to shout out is that in this matrix of the stakeholders, you know, level of interest versus power sorted by low and high, they have on the high for both. So high level of interest and high power is public organizations, 
activists, including individual patients, health professionals, lawyers, politicians, scientists, business representatives, and other parties. So that's high for both. And then in they had legislative and regulatory bodies, high power, but low interest. So I just thought it was like, you know, granted, this could be more granular. There's only four categories overall, but I thought it was kind of interesting that for high, yeah. like, I, here's what I'm trying yeah, to say. I smell I, what you're cooking. I, yeah. I, yeah. I'm trying yeah. to say that they're, they're saying that individual patients and health professionals have high power and scientists have high power. So basically I'm disagreeing with that. I think that it, maybe over the course of like decades, that's true. So, so as a as someone who's been an activist in the space, it's 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 true, but maybe it's not true. And I think that what you're saying is really interesting because today we wouldn't think that. Because if you think of like corporate structure of cannabis, and you're an activist and you want to go talk to a cannabis corporation about social equity, they have this huge corporate structure. It's like hard to get through. Like where like ten years ago, you could just like walk in the door and there's the manager sitting there and you could just talk to them. Um, but they do say in the article on table two, they talk about that. They say it's kind of cool. They say these stakeholders that you mentioned, Igum, are the quote driving force at this stage of preparation. Um, they they possess a high power due to their leadership qualities and charisma. Uh, Dave, your comments. I I just I really what I loved about this article. I kind of jumped right to the whole SWOT analysis. And as you mentioned, like I think, uh, and I'll put on my business hat for a second, take off my science hat, like. I think the U, I don't know how many uh, trade organizations in the U.S. have done a SWOT analysis of the landscape, but it would behoove them to. It's a basic business best practice to you know, look at the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, and then yeah, looking at your stakeholders and like, you know, it's not to say forget about the citizens that have low power, lower interest, but if you want to get things done and you know influence change, you need to look at the folks that have the level that have the level of interest and the power to institute that change. And I think it's really cool to see how they dove into that and gave you know a lot of descriptors that kind of set up the tone for it to say based on where the where the folks you know where influence is and where attitudes and beliefs are within those demographics this is what we can reasonably expect to see in the future of you know what a regulatory you know framework could look like and i think it's really important to just follow this process and uh, thinking about you know the ability for activists to influence change and you know shape public perception which drives you know um, legislative and regulatory bodies who ultimately have the high power but the fact that they have low interest as it's called out here that's the other important fact it's kind of like here in the u.s they have high power but there's low interest to get things done so it's you know it's not top on their list of priorities and if it's not on the top of the list then well i've got other fish to fry i'll get to it tomorrow maybe and um you know kind of paints the re- roots us back in reality um, right. i would say and, and maybe we're on the cusp of seeing a cannabis revolution um, in Eastern Europe, as far as it being used as a medicine, a textile, a food, soil remediation. Um, you know, you can use hempcrete to build things. Um, there's actually a train station in Los Angeles that's partially made of hempcrete from like a World's so Fair. Awesome. To this day, it's still standing. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate their section on the stakeholders. And I agree with you, Nigam. It seems so like, you know, they're they're... It depends what country and what the context is where I think those stakeholders' powers might change, you know, in terms of like if you were if we were to go back twenty-five years ago with cannabis, um, we might think the same way that they're thinking now. But today we're like, wow, like advocates for medical cannabis patients don't seem to be getting much attention these days. Like it's it's harder and harder to break through 
the noise. Um, I, I completely agree with that. But, um, you know, it'd be interesting to, to learn more. And I guess as, you know, as in most countries, law enforcement seems to have a high level of influence and a low level of interest. Uh, they always kind of, um, you know, get, get chewed up and spit out. But I think what I hope is we find a way to incentivize those with low interest to support cannabis regulatory changes. Um, you know, I, this has been a great discussion with you, David and Nigam, especially. I, I just, this has been really great. Any final thoughts, anything you'd want to just share before we go? You know, um, I guess I'll say my final thought about this article is what, what, what communicated to me was how important it is to properly inform the public, to shape public opinion with good information. Um, I think this SWOT analysis has really laid a comprehensive like framework for like, you need to unite people, you need to educate them, you need to provide them with a, a mechanisms to incentivize them, and you really need to shape public opinion with the right messaging. I thought that was a fascinating point, but I'll leave it open for a few seconds if anyone else wants to throw a last comment in. I'll just add to that. Yeah, you know, data and good, you know, knowledge is power and setting up the right, you know, call it a design of experiment to ask the right questions, which can help inform us of where the weaknesses are to educate folks. You know, knowledge is power. And yeah, this was a really, by far my favorite study. I look forward to rereading this paper because it was jam-packed full of stuff. Yeah, um, I would just say I I also really enjoyed the study. You know, often... Uh, we will will critique things, and and this I I thought was more um, just kind of eye opening, and um, you know there's so many things with with cannabis that that can be beneficial, and uh, I I just found this to be like I said eye opening and, and very positive um, in in hard times in in that region, and um, you know uh, sending positive energy to everyone who's being affected and um and hoping for peaceful resolution for for all humans in the near future and and that focus can return to you know helping each other and and building each other up so i think that's where i'd like to leave it yep absolutely and of my final thought for the episode as we close out is if you are involved in any industry reach out to colleagues in eastern europe and ukraine I read this article. It inspired me to do it. And this is what brings you the article today. And um, so again, uh, just a simple thing like sending an email out to someone in your field, seeing if they want to discuss their work, led to me finding this uh, amazing article entitled Perspectives on Formation of Medical Cannabis Market in Ukraine Based on a Holistic Approach, published in the Journal of Cannabis Research. All right. Thank you so much for your time, listener, in today's podcast. And we look forward to having you part of our next episode. 